Following the recent overthrow of the dictator Carlos Zarago, there have been reports of a coup in nearby San Diablo, led by Santiago Rivera, and opposed by the Democratic faction, who have reported to have been inspired by visions of the Norse god Thor. There has as yet been no announcement of possible Latvian intervention. In late breaking news, the American monster known as the Hulk has been spotted in the town of Plainville, whose residents were recently found to be frozen in place. This is Gustav Croft for the VOL. Zero, zero, 002. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, 002. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lotum sees it. And now, our weekly feature on the history of our world's greatest hero, Victor Von Doom, with your host Douglas Woke, by special arrangement with Universe 1218. Thank you, Doombot J437. We have an extraordinary guest today. It is Dr. Osvaldo Oyola from the Middle Spaces. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little about who you are and what you do and what the Middle Spaces is, please. Well, I'm uh, Osvaldo Oyola. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. I have my PhD in uh, contemporary and 20th century American literature, but focusing a lot on uh, the intersections of like literary uh, fiction and comics. But my work has mostly taken me, I kind of got into comics in, through that direction, and then I kind of just kept going with comics. And so The Middle Spaces is a public a site of public scholarship where I and increasingly other scholars and other fans of comics write deep dive uh, interrogations of comics of all eras. We also write about uh, music and TV shows and movies, but the, the most most of the fo uh, focus is on um, comics. So uh, I actually decided I made an, uh, an announcement that I'm going to try to write less for it in the coming years and use more time to try to edit and solicit other people's work so I can try to do some other writing. Not that I'm tired of comics. I might be slightly tired of writing about <laughs> comics, but uh, I just need a break. I mean, I can't imagine that, you know, I just need a little break, but I still love talking about comics. So that's never going to go away. So I'm really, really uh, grateful that you invited me to be a part of this. I'm so grateful you could, uh, you could join me. So the issue we're looking at today is actually Dr. Doom's second appearance in comics. Um, if you heard last week's episode, you, we talked about his first appearance, uh, Fantastic Four number five. And this is Fantastic Four number six. Uh, this is an odd issue in all kinds of ways. One of the big ones is that it's the first time that we really have a sense of issue-to-issue -issue continuity because it's the villain from number four plus the villain from number five show up and it's number six, Captives of the Deadly Duo. Uh, maybe we should just try to explain what happens in this kind of inexplicable story? I mean, the broad narrative is Namor and Doom supposedly teaming up to defeat the Fantastic Four, but we actually, it takes quite a while to get started uh, with that. And actually, what I, one of the things I love about this issue is that it starts with a, like a man on the street, a person on the street, I should say, uh, perspective. First seeing the Human Torch, as he's flying around the city looking for Dr. Doom, because I guess because of the events of the previous issue, but then being knocked around by Invisible Girl, um, which I have a really hard time calling her Invisible Girl. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so if I call her Invisible Woman while we're talking, you know, you know who I'm talking about. And then everyone acting like 
do the Fantastic Four exist? Are they an urban legend? Like it's kind of like they hadn't quite decided, I think, about what the relationship of the normal, quote unquote, normal world and a fantastical superhero world was like in the Marvel Universe yet. So I thought it was kind of interesting that they started with this street level experience and then we kind of get brought into the Baxter building through this secret elevator that she takes to get away from the mob of people. And then we get this great cutaway of the Baxter building and what their Fantastic Four headquarters looks like, which is great, like typical Kirby amazingness. And we haven't even gotten to the main story yet. And it takes a little while to get to the main story because before we can get to it, we see the Fantastic Four looking at a letter from a little boy who's been hospitalized and Sir Reed Richards stretches his body across the street to visit the kid. And then we get a threat from the Yancey Street gang. And then finally we get the Submariner showing off by playing with porpoises. Yeah, he's like really into it and he's like ta talking with them, right? He's like that my fiend. My, that my fiend. subject. He's that like, monster. It's like uh, Atlantis is gone, so Dol he's taken over. Like he's kind of cosplaying being a monarch with dolphins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, it's interesting that that little bit is the first with uh, Reed Richards visiting the kid, stretching across the street to visit the kid in hospitals. The first mention of unstable molecules, if I'm not yeah. uh, incorrect. And it's I also maybe right. the is it the first mention of the Yancey Street Gang or like an early reference of the Yancey Street Gang? It's definitely got to be an early one. There might have been one earlier, but I think I think that this is. This is where that stuff is being set up. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about these early issues. Every single thing is establishing, every single issue is establishing some major part of the Marvel Universe, even though at the time it's almost like a throwaway. One very odd thing about this issue, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little more as we get into it about the plot of it, but it is signed in every single chapter by Stanley and Jack Kirby. Like they're sticking their signatures in it. Like there are I think, mm -hmm. five chapters of it and their signatures are on the first page of every one. There's a little mini splash page in each one. Tom Brevoort uh, posted a thing on his uh, blog a few months ago, suggesting that this might be the one issue of Fantastic Four that Jack Kirby wrote the actual script for. Hmm. So that includes the dialogue. That includes the dialogue, yeah. And Kirby obviously plotted a lot of them, and yeah, uh, has also uh, done a bunch of scholarship about those early issues, about how closely Lee and Kirby were working together on really every page, just working and reworking it. But the dialogue in this issue does not really read like Stanley dialogue a lot. It doesn't have that kind of like snap and bounce in comedy, mm -hmm. and it's got a lot of the rhythms of Kirby's writing, and we don't know. Uh, what was Lee's involvement? Maybe he co-plotted it. Maybe he said, let's bring back the... We What's Brett Mort's evidence for this? Did he find an old script or something? Or No, he's just he's just looking at the text and oh, okay, so. saying, right. like, it, it just, this just doesn't read like Lee. Uh, and he did find, I think, a little bit of an interview with Lee at some point saying, like, yeah, you know, we tried having Jack write the script. It just, it, it didn't work that way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, some of the vocabulary choices even struck me as odd, even for Stan Lee. And I, and I can't remember exactly now. Maybe we'll we'll come across it as we're going back through. But there were some choices of word choices that made me think, huh, it's interesting that, that you know, even for Stan Lee, that seems kind of an esoteric or out there word. Um, so maybe, you know, Kirby had a tendency to occasionally litter 
his descriptions with with that kind of thing. So maybe maybe that's more evidence. I'm not sure. The characters having been introduced, we finally like six pages into the story, Doctor Doom shows up again, having escaped at the end of last issue, and this is a very early Doctor Doom. There is no Latveria yet. Yeah. There is no monarchy. There is no real sense of his past beyond the little bit that we got the issue before about, you know, he experimented with dark powers and he knew reading college and he's just a bad guy. Trust me on this. He's just a bad guy. He does bad things. We're not going to show you any of the bad things he does, but he's awful. Really? Yeah. 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 Uh, He, he definitely, it's interesting. One of the things I've been thinking about as I was reading this was this difference between Namor and, and doom as villains and how stark they kind of seem at this point, but over time, and I'm sure you'll get to this as as this podcast continues, I think Doom gets closer to Namor as time goes on because we're given more and more of like a tragic potential for tragic backstory or for the choices that he made. Where Namor, right, that's what we 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 get. Like he lost his people. He's in love with Sue Storm. Uh, so he uh, has this more of a rich background than Doom does at this point. And later on, we get the sense, oh, they're both monarchs. Their respective countries, their respective kingdoms are the most important thing to them, or in Doom's case, one of the most important things to them. They can't do that here yet. Yeah. He's just Dr. Doom. He's just a dude in an iron mask. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in, in many ways, the, mis- the mystery of Doom or just being a bad guy was is the is the what works about him at this early stage, because you really could take him in, in any direction they wanted. So I think that works. So Doom's ship, which I love, is totally Kirbyism. It's an aero sub. It's an aero sub. That's amazing. So it's flying. It finds, in a way, Namor's an aero sub, right? He flies and he goes underwater. So he's flying when he spots Namor, but then he follows him to the ruins of Atlantis where they can, like, have their conversation about, you know, Atlanta, but basically Doom manipulates Namor into attacking the surface world again or attacking the Fantastic Four. Again, in those panels, I don't know what page numbers you have, but the panels at the top of the page where Doom is kind of convincing him to get revenge and Namor has is buried his face in his hands. In some ways, it feels very counter to the Namor that I'm used to because Namor showing that kind of emotion uh maybe is not as common or at least not thought of as common uh, as the more imperious version that we're that we're used to but i love it i love the look on his face once doom has convinced him and that's just a classic jack kirby triptych too like at, at this point like he would just take a tier three panels of a story and it would just be a progression of three versions of the same image and he does this over and over and over he does it again later on the on the same page with like a huge pagan idol like a yeah. giant stone thing at the bottom of the sea like a little bit later yeah, yeah. yeah i mean the where, where he's showing his like anti-grav thing the grabber they call it the the grabber which is totally something kirby i think would come up with i think the grabber is a such a basic name <laughs> yeah when I read it, I was like, the grabber? That's the yeah. best name he could, that Dr. Doom could come up with is grabber? <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's a piece of evidence for, yeah, yeah Kirby wrote this one. Yeah. Um, so the plot moves on. He's convinced Namor to, to sneak in the pieces of the grabber into the, uh, the Baxter building. Um, but before we even get to that, when we shift back to the Baxter building, 
Johnny Storm has found an 8x10 glossy of Namor among Susan's things that she was hiding. I, I guess she'd been pining over. Just Namor as Doom secretly. a few pages earlier found you know, Namor pining over like an 8x10 of Sue, Sue Storm. That's true. So how did when did they exchange mm. these photos? Is what I want to know. <laughs> I don't know. Have what they been like photos? mailing each other? Are they what's been going on? Mm. Um, I, I would think about you know secret texting, but that's before that. But um, yeah. So that is very upsetting, right? The the team confronts Susan about her sympathy for Namor, right? Um, right. She felt like she feels like he's un he's not understood. He might be hostile, but he's like bitter and sad, you know, like there's reasons for how he acts and then Namor just shows up in that moment and the thing has to be held back. Right. Just flying through, flying in through a window is no problem to Prince Namor. Okay, great, yeah. great. Yeah, security at Baxter Building is lax. <laughs> yeah. Um, although, you know, three pages later, we, we get to see omnipresent surveillance. Yeah. You know, Reed Richards has a camera in every single room. We wonder who he's spying on all the time. Yeah, right. Every every single place from the lobby to the the map study, right? I guess that connects back to the to the cutaway of the Baxter building that yeah. we saw earlier. So we get to see like really a sense of how much he really does get to surveil. Uh, and then all of a sudden the Baxter building starts famously, I think this is a famous adventure. Yeah. Famously right. starts floating into like straight up towards orbit, triggered right. by the grabber has been triggered by Dr. Dean. Yes. So th there's there's like a little device in the corner of the basement that Doom has activated and it somehow makes the entire building detach from its foundations and fly into space. Yeah. The, the, the shot on the beginning of part four of them looking down at Manhattan, lower Manhattan, when yeah. uh, they're above jet planes that are flying over the city is, an ama is just amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. wonderful. It's fantastic. You have to wonder like, what about the electrical wiring that's going into the bottom of the? <laughs> do you? What, do you? <laughs> what, what about the plumbing? Is there some sort of massive plumbing disaster happening in Midtown Manhattan right now? I mean, that's perhaps possible, but I'm going to be honest with you. If Jack Kirby is drawing it, I'm not thinking about anything except what he has on the page. <laughs> that is fair. Fair enough. That's. <laughs> I mean, the 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 majesty of the Baxter Building. From that perspective, looking down at Manhattan is more important to me than plumbing. Though I understand, I understand your question. <laughs> it, and no, it, it's it's pretty great. So there, um, also the recognizable Broadway, which is like yes. amazing. Like he draws a great New York. <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know, uh, it's a reasonably accurate like Brooklyn and Queens too. Yeah, I can I can see the building where I used to live. Yeah, more or less. So yeah, so they they're so Doom is in his plane. The, I guess it's the Aero Sub. Uh, drawing the Baxter building up towards orbit. Right. So this building has now become a spaceship going up. Yes. Wow. Uh, yes. And there's there's an orbit plane inside the Baxter building, and it doesn't work. It's just Kirby drawing an amazing piece of Kirby tech for one panel, never to be seen again. Yeah, because it fell over. And right. they, they can't get it out. <laughs> so they put... Um, you know, in typical fashion of this era, Sue is the first one to, to submit to the lack of air and they, have to right. put the, they put the helmet on her first so that she could, they're, they're, she was always passing out or fainting right. back then. It's very sad that they wrote her that way. And then, uh, you know, Johnny, the human torch, like 
gets his helmet on and flames on and tries to fly out into space and forgets that there's no air. Yeah. Yeah. That's not, that's not good. And then, and then Reed grabs a hold of him, pulls him back in and he tries to reach the ship by stretching using, um, the thing as an anchor, which is a fantastic shot. Just the, the angle that they're at yeah. when when Reed is hanging out, about to hang out the window and start stretching, is an amazing. I I, I miss this kind of stuff in comics. Actually, like it makes <laughs> sense. Like it, I understand why they're in that position, right? right. Um, and it's five, six panels of of Reed doing nothing but just stretching. <laughs> but then Doom, of course, was ready for this possibility and shoots out like some sort of uh, flame that from the back of the ship that burns uh, Reed's hands. And then he has to stretch back into the building. And I love how they show the bandages on his hands. Like he's actually hurt, right. which is another thing you don't see as often. Yeah. Um, and having done that suddenly, you know, Namor's back and he's got his helmet on too and starts wrestling with the thing just so there can be a little bit more action before Dune turns up and explains that he's about to fly them into the sun. Yeah, he's gonna, he's gonna throw, toss them into the sun, right? Uh, He'll say, he, may, he even makes a joke. Like, yeah. Dune makes a joke, which is, you know, I think John Byrne would object to this. Um, wait, wait, uh, uh, you, you have to read it so we can do the Dune voice though. Okay. Uh, says, but before I part with your delightful company, I shall set your building on a collision course with the sun, which I am certain will receive you warmly. If you will forgive my little jest. <laughs> I, yeah, that's, that's, that's comedy. That's, <laughs> yeah. It's like a bond. That's like a, like a bond, a James Bond type joke. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I, no, I expect you to die warmly i guess uh but then namor like asks uh is there a water storage tank in the building the water storage tank has apparently not drained because the bottom of the building was torn off and yeah. there just happens to be one which makes him strong again so he jumps out into space and hops between meteors in a meteor storm uh, it's the most badass thing it's awesome it's the most badass thing for an underwater themed character to do in space out of water out in space yeah. you know it's not that different but just the three panels of go 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 like who is yeah. he talking to himself yeah <laughs> and it's amazing i yeah. love it and i there's a great um homage to this in a what if from the 80s i think it's what if sue storm had died oh right right and, right and he goes into the uh into the negative zone and is a very similar like homage to this, which I love, which is probably, I saw that first before I saw this as a kid. Oh, well. And so again, Namor reaches Doom's, Doom's ship, the Aero yeah. Sub. Right. And then gets uh, whacked onto the side of it by magnetism? Of course, magnetism can do anything. Uh, does he have anything magnetic he's wearing? Maybe, like, maybe it's his, his, uh, his, little swimming briefs or metal or something maybe atlanteans have a high iron content in their blood <laughs> fair fair okay you get no prize thank you no prize for dr Iola. Uh, and he makes then, it into the ship he breaks he basically uses right. the force of being pushed against the ship to break it open 
goes to pull open the the hatch to get into the cockpit where where doom is and oh no there's electricity it's electrified yeah um but then he says uh, you didn't kill me with that electric charge like an electric eel i absorbed it stored it and now i'm returning it this is a power he's used once yes this is the only time we've ever seen namor do this no one, has also, like no one else has ever pulled it out and put a, i thought someone else pulled it out at some point and it's it's possible but i uh i don't i don't recall it it's uh mm, well we have to wait maybe a listener will chime in and we'll remember yes, if it's that would be that would but, be fantastic if you happen to but but yeah i think i'm i i could have maybe i've just i've seen reference to it before but i was like i think i thought it had come up before at least one other time maybe but it is great that back then yeah. right they could they could easily be like well namor's of the ocean so sure <laughs> eel powers eel powers i think i saw aqualad do this once yeah um uh, so yeah, so he succeeds in uh, defeating Doom, or at least forcing Doom to retreat. Doom well, not even to retreat, like uh, Doom like jumps out of his ship and yeah. grabs a meteor and it flies off into space, where he will meet the o- Ovoids, as we will discuss next time. But yeah. Uh, yeah, no no Ovoids here. He's just disappearing. No, but I do like that. Uh, that final, his final shot of him in this in this issue for eternity is a long, long time. And Doctor Doom, who has coveted all of the Earth, now has all of eternity to scheme in a much larger domain, the universe itself. So I mean, that's, great. that's not wrong. It's not wrong. Yeah, I mean, it, that's... if we look at the the arc of Doctor Doom to, to come, you know, the universe itself will frequently become his his uh, his goal, right? Yeah, uh... like when he tries to get to the silver surfer's powers or what he tries to get beyond his powers he's always trying to get somebody's powers <laughs> i mean you know he's got important things to do with that with that power we're not going to find out for a while what the important things to do are but they are important things initially involving his mom and yeah. later involving becoming god we'll get to that yeah so uh, the baxter building return is able to return to its spot wait, wait, the- how does the baxter building return to its spot Namor brings it back. He pilots the ship. They make, they make a quick reference of it. It's uh, okay. Um, all I, right. I'll, I'll sure. Okay. The submariner and Doctor Doom's. This is uh, Sue speaking. Yeah. The submariner and Doctor Doom's spaceship has guided the building back to its foundation. Thanks to him, we're alive. And the thing is very upset about this. He doesn't know what to do. Like, do I thank him? Do I punch him? He's my enemy. Well, I mean, the thing is a trained space pilot, right? Like he he's he's maybe a little jealous that he doesn't get to pilot this fancy spaceship. Yeah. And we all know, right, subs and spacecraft are the same, so yeah. somehow Namor knows how to pilot it. Yes, of course. And this is the the grabber that uh, we, we then see in, in the basement of the Baxter building, like this tiny little cylinder that has somehow managed to lift the entire building into space instead of just kind of breaking the wall or something. Yeah. The, the the one panel of the thing trying to pull the grabber off the ceiling of the basement while Johnny, for whatever reason, is hanging on to the thing with his feet in the air to grab. I don't know what they're trying to do exactly, but it's really funny looking. <laughs> trying to like add to add to the thing's weight because the thing is not heavy enough right. to. Here, here's another 140 pounds for you. That'll make <laughs> yeah, a exactly. If he weighs even that much, who knows? I guess and... Johnny's supposed to be like 17 at this point. Yeah, something like that, you know. Yeah. Um, the one thing we didn't mention or I, that I thought was important to mention mm-hmm. is that Doom, even though he 
he recruits Namor, or he betrays Namor uh, uh-huh. when he has the ship, when he has the the building go into space with Namor still in it. And we, we do see a panel with Doom saying, he didn't realize that when I said, you know, I want to get rid of the people who stand in my way, that Namor himself is one of those people. So right. it's it's a we're getting a more into Doctor Doom's character. He's not just a bad guy; he's a conniving, smart bad guy, right? He understands who his enemies might be before they understand that they might be Doom's enemies. So I think that's a, at least the beginning of the intelligence uh, and the scheming that we're used to seeing from Doctor Doom, not just well, all, crazy plots. All that said, what does he stand to? Well, first of all, what does he stand to gain from this? Uh, he says, among other things, you know. I've managed to snare the only beings capable of blocking my ambition to rule the entire world. But he's going to drag them out into space and then shoot them into the sun? Isn't there an easier way to get rid of them? Uh, I I can't think of one. (laughs) Fair, fair. Okay, I'll go with that. Um, And does Doom actually do anything that's that bad in this issue? I mean, he tries to murder five people. Well, I mean, tries, you know. He, He does sort of steal a building you have to wonder if anybody else is in the building at the time no they actually make a point of saying that everyone had left because it was after hours ah yes okay so after hours it's non-residential there are no guards there's nobody working late there's all right i mean in theory there probably would have been like a a, a guard in the lobby like the guy in the lobby of die hard who gets shot but right you know and that would have been actually a really interesting that would be a great marvel story uh, yeah, that's like uh, like those Marvel Spotlight series. That, right, right. that been one about the, the the security guard in the lobby of the Baxter Building might went into orbit. <sighs> Marvel, if you're listening, I will write that story. <laughs> yeah, no wonder they had to you know end up getting robots to work the work the downstairs reception area. Really, I, even though obviously this is Doom's plot, what mm-hmm. interests me the most about this issue is. Is, the, is Namor, his relationship to the Fantastic Four and his relationship to Sue Storm. Um, though clearly in the future, Doom and Namor are gonna have a lot more right. interaction. But yeah, talk a little about like that, his relationship with Sue, because that's, that's an interesting thread. It's a thing that keeps going on for a long time. What I love about it for me is, is the, for me, this is the reason why Marvel is Marvel, uh, at least in this era, is because the romance plot the romance basically kirby is introducing this thread of romance that him and joe simon and and whoever else like basically invented uh before this era and putting it into the superhero genre in a way that helps with that continuity right the 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 crazy plots and schemes if you think about them too much right like what happened to the pipes don't actually help with continuity if anything they're often the what disrupt continuity, but it's the human relationships that I think create this ongoing world and universe for, for good or ill, right? Because there's great things about Marvel because of that, and there's terrible things about Marvel because of that. But but here in this early version, I think it's the romance element, the her pining over Namor, Namor being misunderstood, the triangle between her, Reed, and Namor, uh, Namor losing his people, right, and being kind of an outsider figure. So, you know, in some ways, he's like James Dean or something. He's like the bad boy, right? right. So um, it really makes sense uh, that these stories were so popular. In fact, in a way, I think they're almost fooling their audience because if you asked whatever preteen or teen boys, I know girls were reading these comics too, but if you asked them, you know, 
what was interesting about these comics. I'm sure the romance was probably not what they were going to say about them. And yet looking back on them, I think it is the human relationships that makes the Fantastic Four the Fantastic Four and makes these comics worth coming back to. I mean, other things make them worth coming back to, but it's one of the main things, at least for me, that make them worth coming back to. Yeah, and, and I should note that at the same time as this is being published, Lee and Kirby are doing romance comics together too. Like Love mm. Romances is still running. Like Love Romances 101 comes out the same month as Fantastic Four number six. Oh, yeah. So it's, you know, it, it, it makes sense. I think uh, that aspect of instead of four heroes, you know, team together against some great, you know, either specifically Cold War villain or Cold War an uh, analogy, like Doctor Doom kind of is, especially right. once Latveria is, is introduced. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's four heroes where one of them is trying to be understanding of and is actually uh, sees the appeal of one of their villains, which I think mm -hmm. is, you know, very different. And, and 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 really interesting. Um, it all, unfortunately, it's also made because of the time period made to make Sue look like she was, uh, you know, quote unquote, a fickle woman. Yeah. Um, and like emotional and not trustworthy, which infuriates me when I read that. I've actually read it, written a whole essay uh, entitled "Girl, You'll Be an Invisible Woman Soon" about the way <laughs> about the way the invisible Sue Storms who. Uh, or Sue Richards has been written over the years um, because there's the Sue of my mind, which is I love, and then there's Sue on the page, which isn't always the Sue of my mind. Um, so when I see these early things, I'm like, I'm interested in her perspective on Namor, but I'm also upset that they're making her come come off as like some uh, lovesick or un, un fickle woman who doesn't know, you know, how That's to make it. a decision. Namor is also coming off as real lovesick you know he's he's sitting on his uh seashell throne and stuff but he's got his framed and apparently waterproof eight by ten glossy of <laughs> of uh sue and uh he's telling doom you know take care that female is of no, is no concern of yours and even as doom tries to talk him into revenge uh he's like okay yeah i'll, I'll help you but we, we leave her alone yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we know he's tried to bring her to, to Atlantis at different times. You know, he, there, there, when in the early 70s, when it looked like Reed and Sue were going to get a divorce, she went and went and stayed with Namor. So, you know, there, there's a long, there, this is the beginning, this is the beginnings of a long history of the two of them, though I haven't seen them both on the page together in a long time. I'm not as up to date on the current, current uh, comics and I'm not following the current Dan Slot Fantastic Four, but I haven't seen them on a page together for a long time because yeah, Namor is a lot more X-Men in the X-Men universe now. Yeah. He and Sue, like, they're, they're electric here. You know, yeah. Even when he shows up at the Baxter building, you know, the thing is threatening Namor and Reed is holding the thing back and Sue is just, like, pawing Namor's chest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the king of Absalantis, right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Jay and Miles. She even, uh, she, she even puts her, her like her body in front of his, you know. No, oh, yeah, no, you totally. can't do this. You must hear him out. Why he's not even trying to defend himself, you know, yeah. like. Um, but you know, Namor is a jerk too. Like I, I not like Reed, but Namor is not exactly boyfriend material either. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I had to choose between Reed and Namor, I'm not sure. I 
probably would choose Namor, but mm-hmm. probably because I'd have a better time, <laughs> but not because he'd be a better boyfriend. <laughs> so, you know, it's clear what Sue sees in Namor, which is that he's nothing like Reed. Yeah. What does Namor see in Sue? That's a good question. Uh, I, we'd have to we would have to go back to their first interaction, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's some which I'm not remembering right now off the top of my head, but there is something about the first interaction where she is the first one to try to be understanding of him, I believe, um, and is also kind of enamored of his strangeness. I, I sometimes wonder about the degree to which Namor represents like the ethnic other um, and there's something exotic about him. Uh, maybe there's something exotic about her to him, you know? <laughs> so even though she represents other, an otherwise like uh, dominant cultural figure being a blonde uh, white woman, um, but she, you know, maybe that's it. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I have to say Sue Storm is one of my favorite Marvel characters. And now you asking that question is making me wonder like, what is it about her that is so appealing and I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of failing to find a succinct answer to that. What I love about, I guess what I love about Sue Richards, I don't know how to say this without making it sound kind of awful, but like the emotional labor that she does for the team, yeah. which mm-hmm. is not fair, right? Because we all right. know that women are often uh, forced to or expected to uh, produce all this emotional labor for various families and groups and institutions, et cetera. But nevertheless, the way she does it, um, the way she keeps this family together, I guess maybe it's because I was raised by a single mom, but it's, but that's the thing that's like appeals to me about her. Like she strikes me as the strongest member of that group and the heart of that group at the same time. Yeah. There's this amazing, bizarre kind of fantastic four nearly conspiracy site that uh, Zach site um, mm-hmm. that uh, the, the its thesis is the fantastic four was the great American novel. Hmm. Uh, and one of the points that uh, he makes is that Sue's way is the right way. And the arc of the first com- couple hundred issues of fantastic four is Reed coming to realize that Sue is really the person who's, who's got things figured out and that he needs yeah. to take after her. That makes sense to me. I mean, yeah. it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, and to and to come back to Doctor Doom, right? Who's the subject of our of our discussion, or was supposed yeah. to be? Even later, like during Burns' uh, run on Fantastic Four, which honestly, I mean, I could tell you my own personal interaction with the Kirby Lee, which is uh, how I discovered it, which is a story in itself, which I love. I totally but, want to hear that. But, but the Burn era was the era that I know the kind of know the best because right. it was coming out when I was a kid, and I've probably read it the most. Uh, but nevertheless, at that there's a period at that time where Doom expresses his admiration for Sue Richards, like mm-hmm. as the m- person in the group that he actually has the most respect for. Which I think, for Doom to admit that or to say that, I think actually has a lot of weight, right? Yeah. And gives gives it that much. Um, as for that story, uh, when I was about. 10 years old, which is when mm-hmm. I first got into Marvel Comics because right. D, quote unquote DC sucks, which is something I would have told you back then. <laughs> yeah. Because it was 1980, 1981. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to an outdoor flea market in Chinatown, New York, and there was a com- guy selling comics there, but it was just about to start raining and they were putting everything away. And I found this big box of Marvel's greatest comics, which were the fantastic uh-huh. four reprints. Yeah. Wow. And I start yelling uh, to my mom, who's off in a different part of the outdoor flea market, like searching for things like, Ma, hurry up, hurry up. I want to buy these comics, whatever. And like, to me, they just seemed special. I didn't know it. I, I don't know if I knew Jack Kirby's name. Mm-hmm. You know, I might've read a little bit of Fantastic Four, but I could just looking at these covers, I just knew, you know, there's Galactus, there's, there's the reprint of the first appearance of the Silver Surfer, right? yeah. Galactus and Black Panther. I'm getting, you know, and the guy who's packing up his comics and they're just Marvel's greatest comics reprints. They're not worth anything. Is like, yeah, I'll let you get the whole stack for $10. And it was like a huge stack, like Perfect. basically most of the original Kirby Lee run reprint. Nice. And my mom came over and she's like, $10. And I'm like, mom, please, it's a big deal. She she let, she let, paid for it for me and Great. I got them. At that same moment, it just happened that a local cable news uh, thing was there doing like a local interest piece about the, um, about the flea market. And they decided this 10-year-old kid who obviously was really excited and screaming for his mom about comics was someone to interview. So I always talk about it's my first example of being a comic scholar because she asked me like what comics I looked out for and Mm -hmm. why I wanted these different comics and what am I looking for them in them and it was the first time I'd ever had to like consider those questions you know and I honestly can't remember I didn't have cable I couldn't see myself on tv I might have gotten cut I don't know um but nevertheless trying to answer those questions I think was the beginning of me both thinking about comics in this different way but also like it was it was like discovering the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know. Wow. It was it was it was Lee and Kirby original Fantastic Four stories. I, later on, I understood that they were edited and cut up so they could be more ads pages and blah. But that, none of that stuff mattered to me back then, right? All that right. mattered to me was like getting to read the first appearance of Silver Surfer. Yeah. So yeah, and like the first appearance of the Inhumans mm-hmm. and the Evil Eye and all these things that were like yeah. you know. So great, so fantastic. It was, it was, I, I that's an experience that I, I wish on others to like dis- to have that discovery, even if it's not the Fantastic Four, whatever it is. I want yeah. some kid to find that stack of old comics and be like blown away by it and have someone have the opportunity to be like, you know, here you can get it, which was a big thing for my mom to spend 10 bucks on comics yeah. at that time. Right. Yeah. It was like a big thing. She's being like, you know, because I could easily have seen her being like, just pick out one or two that you want. So do you want to plug the middle spaces and your Patreon? So the middle spaces is at middlespaces.com, comics, music, culture, whatever. You can find us at uh, patreon.com slash the middle spaces, all one word, where your one to whatever dollar contribution can get you everything from a no prize, which is usually just me sending you a comics themed postcard with a thank you to stickers. Uh, I'll send you random comics with some writing about it. I do yearly um, uh, like care packages of comic of random comics. And if I know who you are, if I know you from social media, I try to send you the comics that I think you might like. If I don't know who you are, I just do my best to pick some cool comics. Um, so. Uh, yeah, we're just trying to give folks a voice to express and explore uh, comics in ways outside of either the entertainment news format or the behind the paywall academic format. So we're trying to find a, the place that's in the middle of those two things. Thank you so much, Dr. Osvaldo Oyola. Our webmaster, Faithful Retainer Boris, 
has asked me to plug our site, voiceoflatveria.com, and to ask for listener questions that we can answer. Next week, Dr. Ben Saunders joins me to look at Fantastic Four number 10. Voice of Latveria is made possible by my patrons. You can join them at patreon.com slash douglaswalk and know the favor of doom. Zero, zero, two. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, two. The general synopsis of atmospheric conditions at 0600 Doomstad time, Bors Vale, westerly 6 to gay late, backing southerly then veering westerly later. Moderate or good, occasionally poor. Doomsvale and Doomton, west, backing south for a time. Some robotic presence. Increasing gay late to storm 10. Very rough or high. Time anomalies near Mount Victorum, expected 30 kilometers north of the folding city by 0600 tomorrow. This concludes our broadcast day. May Lord Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies until you die.